idea of humans living somewhere off Earth has long been a dream of visionary thinkers. Many reasons have been given for why we've got to do this, for more elbow room, to increase access to resources. But more recently, the idea has taken on a greater urgency. According to space entrepreneur Elon Musk, humanity can either get started getting off the planet or risk its own annihilation. There are really two fundamental paths. History is going to bifurcate along two directions. One, one, one path is we stay on Earth forever, um, and then there will be some eventual extinction event. Um, uh, the alternative is to become a space-bearing civilization and a multi-planet species, which uh, I hope you would agree that is the right way to go. Two prominent billionaires have competing visions for what a space settlement would look like. We'll consider their plans and what it would take for either of them to come to pass and also ask, do we want this to be humanity's future? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, the latest visions for a human habitat off Earth, the author of Station Eleven imagines a colony on the moon and rediscovering the lessons of an experiment living in a closed habitat, a visit to Biosphere 2 in Arizona, where I am now. This episode is called building a space colony. We blast off with a look at the history behind the impulse to make space for everyone. You know, the idea of living in a space colony is such a popular cultural trope that it sort of feels like we've already done it. I mean, we feel we know what it would look like. Meet George Jetson. We built the temporary space station before the migration to Titan. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. I now have 400 healthy potato plants. All natural, organic, Martian-grown potatoes. You don't hear that every day, do you? And so we assume that NASA has been working on this all along, right? We should all be packing for Mars by now. So what happened? After all, there was a time when some scientists enthusiastically called for building space colonies. There was a time when it seemed to be our inevitable destiny. The vision of a space colony that made the biggest impression on me, Molly, and got a lot of people excited, was introduced by physicist Gerard O'Neill in the 1970s. The Apollo moon program had ended. NASA and other space scientists were wondering, well, what comes next? I'm Marianne Dyson. I worked in Mission Control. I was fortunate to be one of the first women to work a console in Mission Control. I was a flight activities officer on the early space shuttle program. The new space shuttle program had made us optimistic about our spacefaring future. Then something happened that supercharged the whole idea of what was possible. Gerard O'Neill was at Princeton and he ran this conference called the Space Manufacturing Conference and they had them all study different aspects of space settlement. Over two days in 1974, scientists discussed the feasibility of colonizing space. And the conclusion of that study was that a space settlement would be better off of a planet than on a planet. Okay, what did they mean that a settlement would be better off a planet than on one? Well, people like Dr. O'Neill meant that instead of a fixed habitat on the moon or on Mars, the space settlement would be in orbit around the Earth. An O'Neill cylinder is, think of it as a giant thermos bottle, and you line the inside with dirt and you spin it. And so 
you would have free fall in the center of it, which you could use then to manufacture things that can only be made in space in that environment. And you could house 10,000 people in one of these uh, rotating cylinders. O'Neill cylinders are giant aluminum cans, although they're probably made out of something other than aluminum, that could simulate gravity, produce artificial gravity by simply rotating. You know, if you have a cylinder that's maybe half a mile in diameter or so, and you rotate it once a minute or two, then it turns out that the centrifugal force on the inside would be equal to the gravitational pull on you walking around on Earth. But you said if you simply rotate them, how do you rotate them? Well, well, you just put a little, you know, cheap rocket on the outside to give it a little bit of a spin. And once you've got it rotating, it probably doesn't stop. I mean, you know, that, you only have to rotate it once. So they're rotating and going around the Earth at the same time. Yes, exactly. They're, they're spinning, they're rotating, but they're also orbiting the Earth. It sounds like you'd be quite dizzy living on one. Well, that's why you want to make them big. I mean, if it's for a pretty small cylinder, yeah, you probably would get seasick. But if you have a cylinder that's, you know, a mile in diameter, what the hey? I mean, it's so big that you don't even notice that it's rotating. And she said that they'd be lined with dirt. Why would dirt? Well, I mean, to begin with, if you're living inside this thing and you want grass on your lawn, maybe the dirt helps. But the real point is that you need some sort of protection against the harsh environment of space. There are all these cosmic rays, these high-speed particles that, you know, give you cancer if you get exposed to them. By having all that dirt, it provides a shield against that stuff, right? That's, that's all. I know it, it sounds crazy, but it makes sense. If you put this enormous can, you know, in, in space, rotating once a minute, orbiting the Earth, you can live on the inside and, you know, kind of feel at home in a way. <laughs> Now, mind you, there are funny effects. If you threw a baseball, it would take a curved path. And, you know, you're looking around and you see other houses or whatever. But if you look up, you'll see other neighbors up there. They're looking, looking up and seeing you. So your neighbors are above you. Uh, kind of interesting, right? But where would we get the construction materials for something ah. like this? Well, the answer to that comes from Gerard O'Neill himself in a 1979 interview. Of course, all the materials for supplying industry in space, all the materials out of which big solar power satellites, space colonies, and so on will be built, will be materials that are obtained in space. So, in fact, we will be using the materials that are found initially on the surface of the moon, ultimately the asteroids. You know, Molly, I knew Dr. O'Neill. He was my freshman advisor at Princeton. So, really? Yeah, yeah, he was. But this was, I have to tell you, this was long before he got interested in space colonies. He was interested in elementary particles then, and he was trying to get me interested in elementary particles. So, Well, his impact was enormous. The idea of O'Neill cylinders essentially opened up a possible limitless future for humanity because there is a lot of real estate in orbit, whereas the surface of a planet or moon is finite. And so this, in this way, humanity could expand out to the stars because we could build as many of these as we want. And we wouldn't be constrained to the surface of a planet. Later on, there's going to be the time when we're going to be designing the big uh, Earth-like human colonies in space, the, the sort of colonies that would be almost a mile in extent, big rotating spheres in space with all the possibilities of grass and trees and flowers and waterways and so on, for people who are going to live there for long periods of time, men and women and children. People dreamed about going into space way back in the 1600s. I mean, the first 
space quote-unquote science fiction was written back in the 1600s. The 1638 novel, The Man in the Moon, by Francis Godwin, imagines a man traveling through space on a ship powered by geese, geese, and spending time visiting a lunar civilization. Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World, perhaps the only work of science fiction by a woman in the 17th century, pictures a utopian kingdom on another world that can be reached via the North Pole. Envisioning and building a utopian space continued into the space age. In the 1970s, a space colony was imagined as a place free from pollution, free from nuclear war, an answer to overpopulation. Earth, after all, was becoming crowded, dirty, and short of raw materials. With each O'Neill cylinder housing 10,000 people and no limit on the number of cylinders, Gerard O'Neill thought that we had an escape from self-destruction. Once there are ordinary, living, breathing human beings, along with their plants, their animals, their food crops, and so on, building biospheres of their own, expanding farther and farther away through the solar system and eventually out to the stars themselves, the human race will be truly unkillable. And I think that at the deepest level, that has to be our motivation. So what happened? I mean, although things seemed optimistic when the space shuttle program promised us rides into space, which after all is an important step in building a colony, the O'Neill cylinders never materialized. The national mood that was high on space was about to change. What excited me was that I thought I had an opportunity to actually do it personally. So Marianne, what do you mean? What were you imagining? Well, my, my husband and I had both heard Gerard O'Neill talk. And we saw the solar power satellites and the O'Neill sphere. And we said, yeah, that would be cool. And we both had gotten jobs at NASA. We were flight controllers. And we said, hey, we, we could maybe we could start our family in space. And that's what a lot of people thought. It's like, well, the astronauts went, and now it's our turn. And, and we were getting ready to do it when the Challenger accident happened. After the Challenger disaster, the idea of space colonies lost momentum. The shuttle program continued, but NASA didn't have the budget to make those dreams of the 1970s and 80s a reality. Other notable space projects took center stage, like the Hubble Space Telescope. Still, Marianne Dyson says the agency never lost its commitment to space settlement, at least on paper. There was an act passed by Congress after the uh, Challenger accident. It's called the Space Settlements Act and it directed NASA to have space settlements as their long-term goal. That act has never been repealed, isn't cited very much anymore, but it is still considered the, the long-term goal. Well, today, NASA has its Moon to Mars program, and they're aiming to return astronauts to the moon, and they're also pledging to put people on Mars. The moon, of course, is a way station where we can build infrastructure to go farther into space and sustain a long-term presence there. It's an exciting prospect, but still, it doesn't have the same thrill as the heady days when we dreamed of raising a family and going to work while orbiting Earth in an O'Neill cylinder. It would take the fortunes amassed at companies such as PayPal and Amazon to rekindle our dream of living in space. Three, two, one. Zero. We're in station. And we're flying. We have liftoff. SpaceX Falcon has cleared the tower. 
uh, SpaceX began developing reusable rockets, which will bring down the cost of taking things into space. And the cost of launching things into space has been a huge barrier. By launching commercial space flights, billionaires Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are opening up space to everyone. Well, those who can afford a ticket, which at this point is still a very select group. And they have competing visions for building a space colony. That's right. It's actually a rivalry at this point. Elon Musk says the main goal of SpaceX is to create a settlement on Mars, while Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos is picking up the mantle of his professor at Princeton in the 1980s, Gerard O'Neill. Jeff Bezos has pledged to build a fleet of rotating O'Neill cylinders, each one supporting a complex ecosystem and a million people. And Marianne, should we take him, a private entrepreneur, a private space businessman like Jeff Bezos, seriously when he talks about building a fleet of O'Neill cylinders? Oh, absolutely, we should take him seriously. He puts his money where his mouth is. I mean, he's, he's already flown people on suborbital flights, and they've been testing their new Shepard rockets and um, got another flight planned uh, very soon. But making steady progress on getting people into space and back safely is not anywhere near actually building a space settlement. Well, you, you have to have a way to get the people up and down reliably. So, Marianne, if I gather from what you're saying is it sounds like private entrepreneurs are going where the government has not gone yet. I mean, uh, NASA, of course, created the International Space Station, but now it sounds like the vision of space settlement is now in the imaginations of private companies. I think it's a shared vision. NASA is is handing over the routine parts, uh, the, the getting up and down. So SpaceX is uh, changing out the crew. They have their taxi flights. And so once you have that logistics part covered, then you can have a permanent presence in space, which we have on the International Space Station. We don't want to lose that permanent presence, and we know parts of the International Space Station are wearing out. And so the plan is to transition over to these private space stations. And there's at least four companies that are working on those parts. So then the next step is once you've got those pieces, you can put them anywhere. And, and um, SpaceX already has plans to fly their vehicles around the moon. And then the next step is to actually land things on the moon. And we'll probably want to build at least outposts and factories on the moon to um, take advantage of the water that's locked up there. So we talked with Marianne Dyson about the big picture motivation that would prompt people to take private entrepreneurs up on their offer for a ticket to leave Earth. I think Americans especially resonate with this whole idea of building a new civilization because a lot of us uh, come from pioneer stock. And so we were anxious to see what's over the next hill. And, and once we looked at all the resources there, what can we build with that? And I think a lot of people, especially right now, they're feeling very stressed out and crowded and they're, they kind of want to go to a new place. They're looking for a better life for their families. And we might be able to build a better life for some of those people in space. Um, we know that the Earth is fragile, becoming more apparent to a lot of people just how fragile it could be. And so we need to learn how to live in space. But could one push back and say, we need to learn to live on Earth, that the Earth is fragile and it's the only planet we know where there is life. And 
thinking about creating a, a settlement somewhere else is a way of avoiding cleaning up the mess that we created here on Earth, and there's no guarantee we won't just repeat that mess somewhere else. Well, um, all of us would love to, to have both, right? We'd love to solve the problems here and also provide an expansion for a new place to live. I would like to see both of those things happen, and I think that actually the technologies that we're developing to live in space will help us clean up the Earth. I mean, what if we move all our dirty factories onto the moon? There's nothing to pollute up there. Um, we can chunk out lots of solar cells. There's tons of uh, silicon. It's the most common element up there. Um, we can pump out those solar cells, and we could collect that energy in space and beam it down to the Earth. So we would have a source of energy that would never stop and would not pollute the Earth at all. Well, then finally, Marianne, we talked about the O'Neill Cylinder and the idea of an orbiting colony, an orbiting settlement, but you have written a children's book with Buzz Aldrin that suggested where we might build a settlement on Mars. What spot did you and Buzz come up with? Well, we, we looked at all the data and, and NASA has picked out a couple of places that are very promising. But the key is that to find a place that will have um, good thermal energy and, and that way um, you, you have a, a good source of, of energy for your settlement. And so we don't know where those locations are yet, but they're probably near some of the volcanoes. So it would be in the northern hemisphere, I think somewhere near the Valley Marineris. Um, which is, of course, a canyon as big as the United States is wide, I think is the most promising because you've already got the canyon that's dug down deep to get to the water, which we think is under the surface. Um, and of course, NASA's sending some spacecraft to check it out. But I, I don't think we need any any major breakthroughs in science. We, we pretty much already have everything we need to give it a try. And some people are, are ready to go. Well, Marianne Dyson, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me on the show. Marianne Dyson is an author and a former NASA flight controller. Next, how science fiction continues to bring the idea of living off Earth closer to home. Perhaps the moon colonies were really just a prototype. You know, that's just like establishing proof of concept, essentially, so we can get away from our solar system entirely. We're looking at building a space colony on big picture science. As we heard, science fiction has long helped us imagine what it would be like to live off of Earth. That sci-fi speculation is ongoing, of course. When the author Emily St. John Mandel wrote Station Eleven, she imagined Earth after a devastating pandemic. That she wrote the novel six years before COVID seemed to suggest that she was prescient. So we paid attention when we heard that her new novel, Sea of Tranquility, describes space colonies in the not-too-distant future. Well, I read her novel. I have to say, I enjoyed it quite a bit. The themes are many, and they're not limited to the colonization of space, but I asked her if she would be willing to give a summary of her book's storyline. That is such a reasonable question, and it is so hard to answer. Um, 
Sea of Tranquility is about time travel, moon colonies, what makes a life meaningful, plague, art, music, and the nature of reality. That, that sounds pretty pretentious, but that is the situation. Many motivations prompt scientists and science fiction authors to talk about space colonies, as we've heard, from seeking adventure to long-term survival. Miss Mandel describes her motivation for moving people to domed homes on the moon or on the moons around Jupiter and her own reason for writing the novel. Like a lot of science fiction, she was prompted by current conditions on Earth. I had started a few fragments of this book in... I want to say around December 2019, but I didn't start writing it in earnest and it didn't become a time travel book with moon colonies until March 2020, which for context, I spent the duration of the pandemic or well, we're still in it. I spent the first two years of the pandemic in New York City, which um, was pretty horrific. And I do remember a very intense longing for escape. And I think that setting my fiction um, outside of Earth had a lot to do with that. You know, just this feeling of I want to be as far away from my apartment as humanly possible. Anywhere on Earth might actually be too close. So, yeah, it was escapism for me as a writer as well. The interest in space colony seems to be uh, perennial. Is this just, you know, our, uh, if you will, our ancestors of 100,000 years ago that they were always looking for a better place to, to live? Or how do you see it? I think there are a couple of factors at play. I think one is that as a species, we are always drawn toward exploration and, you know, and what is the next frontier? We are arguably out of frontiers on earth, unless you have a deep interest in undersea exploration, mapping the ocean floor, which kind of leaves space as the next place to go. So I think that's part of it, just a kind of longing for new frontiers and exploration. I think another part of it has to do with an awareness of mortality. That, you know, we live all our lives knowing that someday we'll die. Once you have even the lightest grasp of, you know, the way stars work, uh, you have to come to terms with the fact that our sun will die too. And I think it's a natural offshoot of that. Just this idea of if we're going to um, survive as a species, we are going to have to get off this planet at some point. The the frontier for these people at you know, in the, in the parts of the novel that are set far into the future, seems to be the far colonies. And, and you describe that as, as somewhere in the vicinity of Jupiter, uh, presumably some of the moons of Jupiter. Is that what you had in mind? I think the farthest colonies were way out around like Centauri B, like way out in the Andromeda system. But there was, but yeah, you're right. There was a colony on a Jupiter moon. Um, now she has an invitation for a literary festival on Titan. I think it's a situation. But, but yeah, the uh, I was thinking of going beyond the solar system uh, for the furthest colonies. And I was thinking in terms of that having been the point uh, politically and practically of having any colonies in the first place. Or, you know, if we want our species to survive, we do eventually have to get off this planet. Um, so, so yeah, I was thinking that perhaps in this reality that I get into in Sea of Tranquility, perhaps the moon colonies were really just a prototype. You know, that's just like establishing proof of concept, essentially, just as a jumping off point for going further and further and further till we can, yeah, till we can get away from our solar system forever, or entirely rather, and, uh, and get away from our sun. Colony two on the moon uh, is the, uh, I think, the, apparently the lesser. It's, it's not a location, location, location kind of place to have your home. 
It's known as the Night City. Maybe you can explain what the Night City is. What I was thinking about with the domes was psychologically, it might be kind of challenging on a bright, sunny day to look up into the void, you know, look up into the blackness of space about the atmosphere. So I could imagine people wanting some kind of, well, simulation is a loaded term in the context of this book, some kind of um, Earth-like impression if you look straight up. So, you know, blue instead of pitch black. But then I was also thinking about just the way development works. Like even in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, when my ex-husband and I bought this house, we knew it was really shoddily constructed and that's why we could afford it. And, you know, it was just a moment when all of this shoddy construction was going up everywhere. And it was just, you know, you, you kind of knew what you were getting into. And I sort of saw Colony 2 as being like that, where, you know, they built Colony 1. It was magnificent. But then there was so much demand in Colony 1 for housing and everybody wanting to leave Earth that they put up Colony 2 maybe just a little bit too fast, you know, cut a couple of corners and then within a century, the dome lighting is failing. So I kind of liked the idea of a place that was neither particularly utopian or dystopian. You know, the uh, I'd say Colony 2, it's neither great nor terrible. It's kind of shoddily constructed. The, um, the domes failed, so it, it's dark uh, for a couple of weeks at a time. But it's not an awful place. You know, it's perfectly tenable as a place to live. And I think for me, those are maybe the most interesting futures. You know, yeah. these places that are neither entirely terrible or entirely great. I, I can remember my own surprise when seeing the first Star Wars film that the rockets looked uh, slightly abused, you know. they Totally, yeah. Like, you'd see the duct tape, practically. <laughs> yes. And I thought, well, that's new. I mean, and, and that's probably much more realistic. And, 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 you know, if you were to visit New York City in the year 2400 or something, I mean, a lot of the old buildings presumably would still be there. I mean, they're not all going to be the new shiny ones, although by 2400, who, who's to say? Well, despite the fact that the locales, and most of your book are elsewhere in the solar system, I, I don't know whether I would call Sea of Tranquility science fiction or speculative fiction. It's a view of the future, you know, half a millennium hence or whatever, in which you have characters that are suffering the kind of problems, they, they experience the foibles and discontents they always have despite the lunar locale. And in other words, the future seems to be like the present, except for the fact that you make your commute in a rocket. Am, am I characterizing that accurately? Absolutely, yeah. For me, I would say not even as a writer, as a reader, if I care about the characters, I will follow the author anywhere, even if they're in very strange worlds like Station Eleven, where, you know, they're traveling through this kind of post-pandemic, post-apocalyptic wasteland or Sea of Tranquility, where they're on the moon. I like the idea that even though the details of the world in which we find ourselves change, we don't really change that much because I don't think we would. You know, I think that if we're lucky enough to reach a future where we have moon colonies instead of just like a dystopic wasteland, I feel like it could go either way. Um, I think we'll still have the same kinds of concerns that Gaspari has on the moon. You know, just this, wait, what am I going to do with my life? What am I best suited for? What would make me happy? I think, I think we stay human no matter where we are. There is one idea in there that I, I did want to ask you about, because it's as, in, in its own way, as radical as the time travel or colonies on the moon or colonies on Titan. And that is the idea of a simulation hypothesis that, you know, what we take as reality is not reality. It's just code running in somebody's computer in the future. 
And do you think it's possible that we're living in such an, you know, engineered universe? I do think it's possible. But, and I hope this doesn't sound too nihilistic. I don't think of myself as a nihilistic person. I don't think it matters, you know? Um, so to back up a little bit, for me, the simulation hypothesis was the only way to make time travel work because you've got that paradox problem right away where, you know, if your character walks out of the room and steps into a time machine, were they not always going to step into the time machine and then back to the room and round and round in an infinite loop? And that kind of destroys cause and effect and free will, which is kind of disastrous if you're trying to build a well-rounded fictional character. And then the idea that I introduced there to try to make time travel make sense for myself as a writer is the character goes on to say, we think the fact that time travel works at all, the way the timeline seems to somehow repair itself the way it does, might be evidence that we're living in a simulation. In other words, that there's this whole other layer of weirdness kind of on top of of all the other weirdness that I put in the book. Would it would it matter to the characters if it was a simulation? I mean, you sort of imply that maybe not. It might not. I mean, because I found myself thinking, well, would it matter to me? And and then that opens up a really interesting can of worms around, well, what is a simulation? You know, I live in a major city, which is obviously more of a simulated environment in terms of where my water comes from, where my electricity comes from, where my food comes from, than say living off the land somewhere way out in the countryside. But it would be crazy to say that that makes my life in a city somehow less real. And then by the same token, what if you take that a step further? If I were living on a moon colony under a dome in an artificial atmosphere, that is a very simulated environment. Would my life be less real there than it is in New York City in 2022? It's like, of course not. So then if you push that just a step beyond that to the simulation hypothesis, if it turns out, if some proof were to emerge tomorrow that all of us are living in a simulation, I just don't think that that makes our lives meaningless. You know, I think what we do and the choices we make still matter. And kind of by that logic, I feel like that doesn't make our lives less real. Really? Well, I, you're farther along than I am, I have to say. When, when I consider that all my friends might just be code, <laughs> somehow, I don't know, that devalues them in some way I can't really put my finger on. But that's just it. If you found out tomorrow all your dearest friends were code, they would still be your dearest friends. Well, would you decamp for the colonies, assuming there were any to decamp too? Um, from the present world, I would not. I'd, I don't know what the world will be like in 20 years or, you know, 30 years. So yeah, if, if things were to take a terrible downward turn uh, in the environment I live in, then probably. I, I think though, depend on who was coming with me. Like if I could bring my daughter, then maybe. <laughs> Emily St. John Mandel, thank you so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Emily St. John Mandel is the author of Station Eleven and Sea of Tranquility. Miss Mandel's creation of Colony One and Colony Two echoes a theme that's coming up. It may surprise you to learn that we've already created a contained habitat for space here on Terra Firma, but it's modeled on Biosphere One. 
also known as planet Earth. I'm walking deep into the heart of the Biosphere 2 rainforest. Would we have a rainforest in a space habitat? This episode of Big Picture Science is called Building a Space Colony. So now, after hearing some of the different proposed scenarios for space settlements, you might wonder what it's like to walk into one. Well, there's one place that might give you some idea of what that might be like. The first thing you notice about the Biosphere 2 facility here in Oracle, Arizona, is how large it is. The three-acre complex, which resembles a massive futuristic greenhouse, was once a sealed ecosystem and an experiment in self-isolation. They ask that you wear comfortable shoes because you do so much walking while you're here, and they weren't kidding. Gerard O'Neill's idea of self-sustaining habitats inspired a lot of people in the 1970s, notably one group composed of artists and scientists, all ecology-minded, all idealists, who wanted to learn firsthand how Earth's complex ecosystems work together. They wanted to undertake an experiment in living in an artificial habitat that one day we might build off Earth. So in 1987, construction of Biosphere 2 began. It recreated various biomes of Biosphere 1, that is planet Earth, under steel and glass geodesic domes and pyramids. Members of the group planned to live within its closed system for two years. Well, when the eight Biospherians joined 3,800 species of plants and animals in 1991 for the beginning of their lockdown, the event was watched by millions. Inside Biosphere 2, the eight Biospherians went through final briefings and continued to try on their new home for size. But soon, with a large crowd on hand, the Biospherians made their farewell speeches before their mission at hand. When the steel door shut, sealing them inside, the Biospherians were not supposed to emerge for two years. The results? Well, some species died, others proliferated, the seal was broken twice, an injury had prompted one scientist to exit briefly for medical care. Then runaway growth in oxygen-eating bacteria made biospherians lightheaded and liquid oxygen was brought in. Critics said this uh, outside help tainted the experiment, but others said learning things was the point of the experiment and this was the first of its kind. Today, Biosphere 2 is run by the University of Arizona to study climate change as well as to continue serving as a model for an off-Earth habitat. Visitors today can freely enter and leave via its two steel doors. So I think this first door I can handle. I'm not sure about the second one. If you've ever seen a submarine door, it looks a little bit like that. So let's take a visit. Hello. Hi, welcome inside of Biosphere 2. Um, my name is John Adams and I'm deputy director here at this amazing facility. It's very nice to meet you. This is a formidable door. This looks like something you'd see on a submarine. It is. It's actually what we refer to as an airlock. And so we have several of these throughout the facility and these were key design features for Biosphere 2. When it was originally constructed, it was one of the most tightly sealed buildings ever built. So a thousand times more well sealed than your typical skyscraper or building. So it's a little um, humid in this biome. Where, where are we? So we're actually standing in the savanna. We're in the upper savanna of Biosphere 2. And we're in what I call the wilderness section. If we look up, we don't see clear blue sky. I can see the blue sky through the glass. What are we, what are we looking at? Yeah. So. Before you get to the glass, you see this, what I call a superstructure. And we actually refer to that as space frame. 
space frame, okay. okay. They specifically selected that because this is a very strong feature. Mm -hmm. And then sort of inlaid, if you want to think into that superstructure, is the glass. So you are living literally in a glass house. You're in a glass house, yes. You're not throwing stones. We are definitely not throwing stones. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right, you shouldn't be. But this one was actually really well designed. It's my understanding when they designed it that they designed it to withstand softball size hail. Well, let's walk. We're in the savannah now. It's getting warm. Yep. I understand so, it's just going to get warmer yeah, as we so go let's, go. let's go get a little bit warmer. And we're going to walk to the north. And this is going to take us into our equatorial rainforest. Um, you hear pumps and you hear motors that are helping to do a lot of these things that we have to do that we take for granted that nature does for us. So all these ecosystem services. Opening the door to the rainforest. Whew. <laughs> it is hot and humid in here. I can see your glasses were fogging up a little bit. So, you know, some things when you instantly walk in, I mean, you just see this floor, this wall of green inside. I mean, everything yeah. is green. It looks so starkly different from where we came from the savannah. You have a number of different plants and some of the ones that really pop out to me that are unique is I can see cacao. So these are the ones that we use to produce chocolate. I can see coffee trees around. And so, you know, we have over a hundred different species in here. And some of these species have been in place for the entire life history of this biome. So that's 30 years. What's the largest species that you have, largest animal you have here in biosphere or here in the rainforest? Yes. So inside Biosphere 2, you're not going to see a jaguar coming through the forest floor, okay? The largest thing we have inside here is probably going to be a tree frog or a, a lizard that they call an alligator lizard. We also have a number of different types of insects. And so there is a diversity and there is a community. Uh, it's that that community, though, is not as diverse as that if you were actually in a section of rainforest in the Amazon basin equivalent in size here. So if you look up overhead, okay, those those sucks. are going to be very tart bananas at this point. They'll be tart now, but I'll tell you, we we eat them quite regularly in here, and they're very good, very sweet. I think they were the main source of sugar when the Biospherians were here for two years. You're, yes, you're correct. They, that was one source of sugar for them when they were inside, or the main source of sugar. So you have to imagine if you want to make a cake and you don't have sugar, they were using bananas. Yes. It is a rainforest. A rainforest needs rain. How do you make it rain in biosphere? Uh, clouds don't collect above us and drop no. precipitation? No, don't we? So we don't have condensing. We don't get clouds condensing up above. So the way that we create rain in here is we actually have overhead sprinklers. And so we have to monitor it. Can you make it rain? Mm -hmm. So John says he's going to make it rain. This is exciting. Just felt a raindrop. Oh, it's really raining. If you weren't looking up overhead and you're just looking out through the vegetation and you can see the rain hitting the leaves and dripping off of the different leaves and the different leaf structures and sizes we have, and you would think that you were in you know, a rainforest and the only thing that you're not going to have is thunder and lightning inside. Ooh, cool, cool ocean breeze. Yes. So we just leave the hot, humid rainforest we're looking over a bias for two's ocean. So we're looking at a tank that's about a million gallons in size. Uh, it is salt water. It's maintained at about 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was originally modeled after a Caribbean reef environment. What is your favorite story from the time that the Biospherians lived under the glass dome for two years? What's, do you have a favorite anecdote? Just no matter how smart we think we are, nature is always smarter 
And uh, I think that came to light and really was illustrated when they sealed themselves inside Biosphere 2. They thought that they had a pretty good idea between soil respiration and plant photosynthesis to create a nice balance. And they quickly discovered that was not the case. And in fact, uh, of their two-year stay inside at about day 500, oxygen dropped to 14.2%. And they made the decision that they needed to add oxygen back into the system for the safety of the people who were living inside at the time. And I, and I think that just really illustrates still how little we understand about creating these synthetic type systems or th synthetic environments. And what caused the drop in oxygen? The soils that they put inside Biosphere 2, particularly in the rainforest and in their farm area, were created, were synthetically blended to have high nutrient level, high carbon organic content to support this intensive growth of plants. In doing so, not only did they support the plants, they also supported a, an overabundant microbial community and an overactive community. That community is like you and I, it takes in oxygen, gives off CO2. So soil respiration and that production of CO2 was really, really high. It was just an imbalance, but, but no one had ever done anything at this scale. This was an experiment. In fact, I think they felt quite defensive by the media and the public's interpretation of Biosphere 2 being a, uh, a failure because they had to bring in that oxygen. Whereas if you look at it as an experiment, experiment isn't helpful if you don't learn anything. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I often, uh, sorry, I, I get a little defensive when people say it was a failed experiment because if we're doing experiments and we know what the outcome is, we learn very little. It's when those experiments happen to contrary to what we anticipate where we oftentimes learn the most. Now, the original biosphere was to create a life-supporting ecosystem, but it was also a model, and it continues to be, for a space colony, how we might design a space habitat. But do you need all of this? Do you need a rainforest and an ocean and mangroves and banana trees? No, I, I think that's very idealistic. I, I think we love to romanticize with the idea of these very elaborate sort of you know, beautifully architecturally designed domes on Mars or on the moon. When in reality, you know, we're gonna be living underground. We're gonna be living in a lava tube to protect ourselves and stuff. And that if we can capture just a bit of some of these earth system processes to help augment the necessary life support through photosynthesis, for example, but even more fundamentally than that, if we can grow plants in space, many people feel that from a psychological standpoint, that is a huge advantage. Because if we're just eating freeze-dried food every single day for a year-long travel to Mars and then setting up, many people think that that would be detrimental. But if we're able to have a fresh leafy green salad, even if it's once or twice a week or maybe once every other week, you're able to have some radishes or some carrots, um, they believe, many people believe, that from a psychological and social standpoint, there are huge benefits to improving one's ability to deal with that isolation and long-term travel. So what are the top uh, lessons that Biosphere 2 has taught those architects or designers, future designers of space colonies? Fundamentally, um, I think that the recognition that there is a need to include some biological systems. Now exactly how we do that, there are a lot of people worldwide who are looking at exactly what is the optimal way to do that. And we will inevitably learn also understanding where our limitations are. Those limitations is crucial because if we make a mistake in space, there is little opportunity to recover from it. 
So you better get it right the first time. I wonder if it too gives you some perspective about Biosphere One, about Earth, and just the uniqueness of this blue dot, as Carl Sagan said, yeah. um, the only planet with life that we know. And it did a pretty good job of integrating all the systems, but I wonder if there's also some thoughts about just how vulnerable the world is. Well, I would say it did a damn good job at, at <laughs> creating life as we know it. I mean, just think about everything that we have. And you're right, I mean, no matter how deep we look into the universe and how many exoplanets we find, none of them, at least that I know of or that I've heard of, remotely have anything that resembles the conditions that we have here on Earth. And so I think that in itself tells us how unique and how we must protect this planet because this is the only one. You know, we can romanticize, and I know there's lots of people out there, and there's probably going to be people that, that will sort of tell me I'm sort of a hater, but the likelihood that the vast majority of us are going to travel off-planet to escape deteriorating conditions here is well, well into the future. And we need to take care of this because the vast majority of us are going to be stuck here. And we just think about the science that's needed just to get back to the moon. I know we can put boots on the ground, but can we set up a colony? That's an entirely different thing. And you think about everything you have to put in there to have a sustainable colony on the moon or Mars. It's just mind blowing. We're not there yet. We're a long ways away from that. So when they were sealed inside Biosphere 2, it was such a surreal experience for them. And this, these are their words. What they said is they, they almost instantly felt a much stronger, profound connection to their environment because they knew anything that they did almost immediately had an impact on their environment. And so they became very attuned to that. And so they were a key part. They helped to structure the biomes inside. If they were not here though, in some respects, they were also custodians. And so at least Biosphere 2, unlike Earth, if humans left Earth today, Earth is gonna be fine. Life is gonna continue to exist. And you know, our existence would be very difficult you know, to really sort of figure out where we were after a couple hundred years likely. Inside Biosphere 2, that's not the case. There is still the need that we provide the water, we provide the necessary conditions for these organisms to support themselves. So it is not a self-regulating system. There are still mechanical devices that are needed to support the life inside here. Um, I think if we all had a chance to live inside of a Biosphere 2 and our life our conditions, our needs were solely dependent on what we got from inside Biosphere 2, we would gain a much stronger and greater appreciation for Earth itself. Well, John Adams, thank you. What a, what a pleasure it's been to tour Biosphere 2 with you. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm glad I had an opportunity to show it with you and, and your audience. Here I go. I'm about to exit Biosphere 2 and go back into Biosphere 1. That's Molly leaving Biosphere 2 in Oracle, Arizona, after talking with its deputy director, John Adams. Well, Molly, <laughs> welcome back to Biosphere 1. Thank you, Seth. It's good to be back. What would people eat there in Biosphere 2? If the biggest animal was a tree frog, I mean, they're not going to have hamburgers. Well, they're not going to have hamburgers, and the Biospherians 30 years ago were all vegetarians. They all lost weight, 
I should say. Their diet was drawn from the crops that they tended to within Biosphere 2. So there were rice and yams and peanuts, millet and beets, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, my take on the big picture here, Molly, is that you know, living in space and artificial environments, it's an old idea, but it still hasn't been realized. People are talking more about it now. It seems obvious to me that we're going to have to do this simply because of the lack of space and resources on Earth. Yeah, I... Uh, mm, the inevitability about all of this, I find disturbing, personally. Are you not afraid of some of the ethical issues that might be involved here? One, that it may be the rich people that go into space in the beginning, but even that aside, that we have an obligation to take care of the only planet that we know and life on this planet before we go creating life off planet. Isn't that yeah, an ethical no, an ethical problem? No, not for me, because I, I think you could have made the same argument 500 years ago and said, look, you know, don't get on this ship to go to the Americas and try and start a farm there. We got to fix Europe first. And it turned out that actually that's not the way it happened. <laughs> So, yeah, I agree with you that we, we need to take care of planet Earth, but I'm just saying that going into space, living in space, whatever you think of it now, your great-great-great-grandkids are going to think a lot differently about it. <laughs> but the truth is, there's no place like home. Well, there is at the moment no place like home. You haven't much of an alternative. But uh, I can't imagine that there won't be millions of people, you know, 100 years from now who say, there's no place like my rotating aluminum can. <laughs> This show is possible thanks to the soaring imaginations of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization spurring exploration of the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was provided by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the effort to create permanent habitats off Earth is called Building a Space Colony. I've come back into the rainforest to look for my glasses. <laughs> I dropped my reading glasses here somewhere, and I guess they'll just become part of the uh, rainforest floor. One day, maybe a new generation of biospherians will find my glasses. <laughs> <laughs>